Fitzgerald. He is David Mack. It's Thursday, and you are watching Am to David Mack. Ah, I like what you did there. Thank you very, Thank much. You very much. Did you appreciate that? I did because uh, I have a friend okay. who shall remain nameless uh, and who said to me the other day, I know you're on this Twitter show. They don't really use Twitter. No. Okay, uh, so they're not like big on Twitter. They're not big on Twitter. They live an innocent life. And uh, <laughs> they were like, oh, what is the, is the DM stand for David Mack? <laughs> Sorry to tell you. Uh, I was like, <laughs> You know what? Yes, it does. That's right. Wait, he thought the show's named after you. Yes, even and, though I'm not one of the main voices. And you let it slide? I mean, you know, let me have this. Come on. Let me have it. You know what? I'm going to do more than let you. I think it's canon now. Thank it is, you. It is AM to David Matt. Thank you very it's much. Canon. I appreciate that. Well, look, I want to get right to it because it's a busy, busy morning this morning. And I want to talk about the top uh, trending story at BuzzFeed. Here's a tweet from BuzzFeed News. Brock Turner must continue to register as a sex offender for the rest of his life after losing an appeal. A California court has tossed out an appeal by the former Stanford University student who was convicted of a 2015 sexual assault. Now here to talk to us about this is reporter Marianne Georgiantopoulos from the BuzzFeed Newsroom. Marianne, remind us what Brock Turner was first convicted of. Right, so he was convicted of, um, of assault with intent to commit rape, sexual penetration um, of an unconscious person and sexual penetration of a uh, intoxicated person. Um, he was sentenced to originally six months in jail, but he, of which he served uh, three months. Of which he's only served three months. Um, and in the appeal, he used this argument that it was, and this is a quote, sexual outer course. And he's making that argument because his pants were technically still on. What did the appeals court make of this bizarre argument? Right. Well, they did. They didn't buy it. You know, they they used kind of statements from eyewitnesses as well as statements from paramedics and hospital staff that examined uh, the woman afterwards to, uh, to essentially decide that you know this argument it just just is not just not valid. And I think the judge used uh, some of the testimony from eyewitnesses about that to refute the this, wasn't that? Right. So, you know, a big part of this case was, you know, there were two graduate students um, at Stanford who were riding their bikes on campus and they kind of came across, you know, Turner on top of this of the woman and they you know, saw that she wasn't moving and they yelled out to him, like, what are you doing? She's unconscious. And Turner attempted to run off. Um, and then one of the graduate students, you know, chased him down, tackled him to the ground and like held him until campus police arrived. Um, so there, the eyewitness uh, statements from these two graduate students kind of played a role in um, the, the whole case in, in general. Now, Marianne, I want to ask, because I know working in the newsroom there with you, there's a giant board behind us which has all the trending stories that are getting shared. And I feel like every time Brock Turner is in the news, uh, the letter from his victim that we published uh, also starts trending, that really powerful letter that she read out in court. And I, I want to know, Marianne, why do you think this story remains so powerful for, for so many people? Right. Um, like you said, I think it's just so powerful. And, you know, I checked this morning, and I think that... Um, the impact statement that we published in full has, you know, has been read almost 20 million times. And I think that the woman's strength and courage at a time, at a, such a difficult time in her life, um, just really resonated with a lot of people. And I, 
honestly think it's going to be one of those things that will be timeless and that um, people will keep referring back to because it is so powerful and impactful. You know, there are several points in her statement where she addresses other sexual assault survivors directly, you know, saying like, I'm with you. When people dismiss you, I believe you, I'm with you. And I think for other sexual assault survivors, it's a very powerful thing to hear. Amen. Very powerful indeed. Thank you, Marianne, for joining us this morning. Guys. Appreciate it. Well, listen, here's a tweet from author and TV commentator Keith Boykin. So Trump wasn't smart enough to predict that his own reality TV created supervillain Omarosa would secretly tape his conversations in the White House, but he's going to outwit Vladimir Putin and Kim Jong-un? Supervillain. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's my supervillain That's a laugh. That really good, right? good supervillain like, laugh. I'm not going to do it again. Uh, everyone's <laughs> favorite celebrity Big Brother contestant is back in the news after the Daily Beast revealed Omarosa has secretly recorded conversations with the president. Yes, the former White House advisor has apparently been shopping these tapes to people as she tries to shop her tell-all book around. Yeah, exactly. And joining us to explain uh, all of this is Max Tani from The Daily Beast, one of the reporters who broke this story. Max, good morning. You should, good before, morning, guys. before we get started, I should let you know, we are taping this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> that's to be expected. I, I realize that's, uh, you know, everybody's taping everybody nowadays. It appears. Yeah, I won't lie, it is not great for somebody like me who has extreme paranoia. But Max, <laughs> what do we know about these tapes? Well, uh, let me just preface by saying we don't really know much. We, I've, we've spoken with one individual who, uh, in the process of, uh, as Omarosa has been kind of promoting and kind of building hype for her book, she's been um, kind of talking to people saying, hey, I've, I've got these tapes of uh, conversations with, with, with Trump. And, uh, you know, we spoke to one individual uh, who had heard those tapes uh, and, uh, you know, what we can say from what we know from talking to people for whom she's uh, described the tapes and for the, um, the individual who has heard the tapes, uh, the conversations don't seem to be all that particularly interesting, which might actually reflect kind of what her position was in the White House, which was uh, maybe not super centrally positioned. She was a uh, communications director for the Office of Public Liaison, which is not like right exact. It's an important role, but it's not right in the middle of the action. Um, so frankly, we don't know exactly what's on there. They could uh, the, the tapes that people have heard and do kind of know about uh, don't seem to be super groundbreaking. But, um, you know, I, I don't think uh, any conversation with Donald Trump is always going to be interesting. So um, there's a possibility that um, tapes that she may have more tapes that that we haven't heard that could be, you know, could be really interesting. Um, at this point, we just don't know. So, amen. We don't know uh, what scandalous things might be on there, but at the same time, this isn't the first person that's been taping their conversations with the president. We know Michael Cohen, of course, during the campaign, that tape got released of him discussing uh, the payout to that Playboy model. What is it about Trump's inner circle that uh, makes them all want to tape each other? What's going on? <laughs> you know, that's really interesting. Um, I think that certainly there is a... Uh, I think that maybe there might be a, a level of of of, dis, of distrust among some uh, top uh, members of uh, his his inner circle, which uh, I think might be actually an understatement. Um, but I, I think you know one of the things that we've seen is is that um, is that there are a lot of people who were kind of looking make, to make sure that they were kind of kind of you know cover their backs and make sure that they had records of a lot of these conversations so they could, you know, back some of their stuff up. Uh, what we what we learned about Omarosa also and what she's going to reveal in her book is that um, she claims that she was involved in essentially um, looking for leakers in the White House. Uh, and so she, I, I mean, I think that there was a, 
high, there was a lot of suspicion among um, among people in Trump's inner circle that other people that you know if you weren't uh, that other people might be leaking on you or there might be some kind of backstabbing if there wasn't uh, you know if you weren't uh, if if you weren't you know loyal to some of the right people or on the right side of things. Um, so I think that maybe this was a sh- sort of insurance policy. Um, you know who can say uh, she certainly has a uh, she certainly has a penchant for high drama. So it might be a uh, it might just be uh, uh, you know some something yeah. that she's uh, been preparing for. No trust among thieves and uh, no trust among TV reality stars. It turns out, uh, Max. Let's talk about that book though. It's titled Unhinged. Um, what else do we know about it? Uh, and Omarosa made some claims maybe about the president's mental health. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So there's only a few bits of, the book is out on Tuesday, so we'll all know um, soon enough. Um, but of the parts that have been released, um, we know two things. One, uh, Omarosa claims that um, you know she has witnessed uh, Trump's uh, mental decline. Uh, she says she was watching the uh, interview with uh, with Lester Holt uh, uh, last year, which was kind of a bombshell, and she realized that he wasn't as sharp as uh, as he had been in the past. And she says she's really well positioned to understand his mental health because she knows she's known him for years. She knew him when he was on the um, on the Apprentice. And uh, the other part that we know is the the part that I you know that I just um, that I just described, which is uh, Omarosa essentially was claims that she worked with Ivanka Trump and was going to work with Anthony Scaramucci to kind of cleanse the White House of leakers. Um, and obviously there's a there's an irony in this that has not been lost on the White House, which is that uh, she now herself is leaking that conversation about purging the leakers. So um, those are the only parts that we know so far. But uh, Simon and Sh- I, what I do know is that Simon & Schuster, the publisher of this book, expects this to be um, pretty massive. Um, so I, I think that, you know, we can count on a lot more um, interesting revelations that are going to come out in the book. It is hard to keep track sometimes, Max, of who is leaking and who is the leaker and who is being leaked on. I don't know. This is going to be uh, a messy time. But thank you very much for joining <laughs> us. And we look forward to your story about whether Melania has also been recording the president. Let's find out. <laughs> Thanks, Max. Thanks, guys. If one more person says leaked on, I'm going to die. Sorry. Uh, Okay, Twitter, we want to hear from you. What do you hope is on those tapes? Let's write some fan fiction, all right? Let us know using the hashtag AM2, never trust your friends. So help me God, David Mack, if you're recording any of our conversations, I'm going to be so mad. But yeah. Leak them. Yeah. What do you hope are on those tapes? I just remember from the Cohen tape, there was that great moment right in the middle of it where Trump just shouts out like, bring me a Coke, please. (laughs) And I assume that Omarosa tapes are just him asking for Diet Coke. That's going to be all of it. It's not going to be that. I love it. Well, listen, move over Jeremy Meeks, because Marshala Perkins is the new Mugshot Bay. A story from BuzzFeed's style section, as is, college student Marshala Perkins' mugshot went viral, and people are demanding a makeup tutorial ASAP. Now, Patrice Beck, who wrote that piece, she joins us now. Good morning, Patrice. How did you come across this story? Um, so I actually came across the uh, mugshot um, on Instagram, um, but someone had retweeted the mugshot on Twitter um, and had said, free sis, we need a tutorial, and that's what really made it go viral. And that's what made it really go viral. Well, we're in for a treat because the mugshot queen herself, Marshala Perkins, joins us now. Good morning, Marshala. Hi, hey. Thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Listen, so your mugshot went viral recently, but this story starts earlier this year. So take us back to February 6th. What happened that night? Um, Well, what happened that night was my friends came to my dorm and asked me, did I want to go to another friend of ours' house? And I agreed. So I went down there to my car, and as soon as I cranked my car up, seems like 
a police officer drove right up behind me and put his lights on and came to my car. They asked me for my handicap sticker, my ID. They told me everything came back clear. And then he stood there and was like, your car smells like weed. And I'm like, it smells like what? <laughs> so then he proceeded to find, he proceeded to search it and then he ended up finding something. But to me, I feel like it wasn't anything worth going to jail over, you know? Amen. I think I'm glad you brought this up, uh, Mashallah, because I think your story has gone viral and a lot of people are, you know, quite happy with your mugshot and they think it's quite beautiful. But there's, you know, there's a harrowing experience behind that shot, isn't there? Can you hear us, Mashallah? Yes, I can. Yeah, I was just saying that it, it, there's a, you know, your story has gone viral with this, uh, this mugshot of yours. But of course, as you've just described, there was a really traumatic experience behind that, right? Yes. Yeah. And so we know that uh, police go after people of color disproportionately for marijuana arrests. Tell us about how this one arrest changed your life. Well, like before... I actually got arrested. I was in my room doing my uh, usual live videos on uh, YouTube. I mean, on Facebook where I do makeup live tutorials. So when I went out there, you know, I still had my beat face and everything. So when I actually went to jail and they booked me and took my mug shot, you know, that's how I was. And I was just there with my beat face. Just there with your beat face? <laughs> yeah, just there. And- and then the internet went nuts over it. So Patrice, I want to ask you real quick, as a fashion expert, as a style writer, uh, basically on a, on a scale of one to flawless, how flawless was Marshala's mugshot and, uh, and why? Hmm, I would say on a scale of one to flawless, definitely flawless with three exclamation points. <laughs> um, just the fact that, as you had mentioned, like she had gone through such a traumatic experience. Obviously, you're sweating, you know, you're you're touching your face and whatnot. The fact that her makeup actually stayed on throughout all of that is very impressive. That is the skill that like celebrities pay for, you know, so. Well, amen. Marshala, you're getting compared to a celebrity there. I want to know what have you made of this uh, experience of going viral, of your of your mugshot going viral? Some good coming from all of this, at least. Um, the good coming from all of this is definitely the support, you know, with my um, court fees and, you know, me, my battle with the judicial system now. Um, and it just really helped boost my career, really, because this was having my own makeup, you know, being a makeup artist was always the goal. So now that I can I have this opportunity to do it at a larger scale, you know, I'm just happy about it because, you know, people have to work. I've worked really hard, and for this opportunity to just fall out the sky like that, it's kind of like just a, a blessing, really. A blessing. Listen, before we let you go, Marshala, I got one quick question from Twitter. Sierra B writes, ask her about her lip gloss, Isaac. So, Marshala, what are you wearing right now? Okay, on my lip gloss, um, actually, let me find it for you. Okay, so the lip gloss that I have is from... This um, company, I think it's called Honey Cosmetics. I got it about a couple years ago, and I think it's in Stripper. There we go. Yeah, can you hold it up a little? Perfect. <laughs> Thank you so much. Everyone's getting makeup tips and getting uh, life tips. I love this from Antony. Thank you, Marshall, and thank you, Patrice. Thank you. Bye.
Bye, guys. Bye. Well, stick around because we've got a great show. We've got John David Washington and Laura Harrier from Black Landsman here, and we're going to debate the issue that is dividing the country right now. Straws. Ugh. Up next. <laughs> Fire tweet, sorry. Stay tuned. <laughs> I'm not, All right. I'm not dancing, sorry. Yeah, I appreciate that. Welcome back. Uh, listen, we were just talking to Marshala Perkins, uh, who had a great story yeah. and basically uh, a bad situation turning great when her mugshot went viral. Yeah. And Sierra B, you tweeted us asking her uh, what lip gloss she was using, and uh, we got it here. Found it. Blessed. Like, we asked Marshala, she shouted it out. Aim to DM, we are now a beauty show. Name another show that serves you like we do. There's not one on television. <laughs> that no, is correct. True. Look, it's five tweets. Let's do this. Here we go. First one. Helen Rosner tweeted, anyone who doesn't keep their email in the leftmost tab is a cop. <laughs> this is so true. I'm sorry. This I is feel like. Seen, right? well, and that's, it like blew up, right? Because everybody felt it. Right? I just think it's like, I feel like I'm trying to order my computer. I'm very like smart and ordering, and then I realize everyone does that. Yeah, so you've got your, your, your Gmail over here, your my mail. Gmail's over here, and then like a million Twitter tags. Yes, absolutely. All right, here we go. All right. <laughs> uh, shout out to this username, Stone Cold Jane Austen. Netflix should add the category, sorry there are no more episodes of Bake Off and Queer Eye. You're clearly going through some stuff. Here are some other soothing shows with people being nice to each other over low stakes things. That is a 2018 tweet if I ever saw one. I want that category. Right? I right? deeply want that they category. They have some specific categories there on Netflix, so I wouldn't be surprised if we get that. So Maybe means go. I'm going through stuff. <laughs> Sarah, are you okay? Sarah Lazarus. Hey there, Delilah. The TV show. Live Strong Bracelets. The movie. Flirting with me in study hall and then ignoring me on AIM. The Broadway musical. Okay, here's the thing. Tune in. I would go to that last one. You I, would, so? I would go to that musical. There's a couple of songs there. AIM, something. Right? What would a song from okay, your I'm childhood not. be named? From my childhood? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. Sad if Loser? What is Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> We're both going through some stuff. Ariana Lenarski, you tweeted Jesus, this song is good. Plays it 400 times in a row until all the emotion is squeezed from it forever. That's better. Now, who else wants to try to make me feel something? That, that is me right now with uh, Robin's Missing You, and I've got to tell you, it's still good. So, uh, 400 times you, in. Yeah. I, I have not listened to it yet. Is it awesome? Uh, we're going to play it at the end of the show okay. now. We're going to have an impromptu dance party. It's so uh, good. All right, here we go. Tweet of the day. Lin-Manuel Miranda, dear friend, my son just invented a new phrase for when he doesn't want to do something, and it's so damn good. Me. Hey, do you want some breakfast? Sebastian shaking his head. I'm sweaty about that. I'm sweaty about that. I am stealing that Lin Manuel Jr. That I'm so sweaty about that. I am sweaty about so much this year. I'm you know? sweaty about so much just this morning. I feel like it could also be taken another way. But anyways, up next, we're keeping it sweaty when we go live from the district. Stick around. I'm not sweaty about that. I'm sweaty about Welcome back. We're going live from the district with BuzzFeed News congressional correspondent Emma Loop. Good morning, Emma. Good morning. Uh, Emma, you are there in the Capitol building, it looks like. Here's a tweet from you. The Senate Intelligence Committee wants to interview Julian Assange, WikiLeaks says. Emma, uh, I gotta ask, why does this, what does the Senate want to have to do with my fellow Australian right now? What's going on? 
<laughs> Your fellow Australian has been up to some interesting activity. Um, so during the 2016 campaign, obviously he's the founder of WikiLeaks, and WikiLeaks was the organization that disseminated all of those hacked emails from the DNC and from John Podesta, and so that's how he is involved in all of this. All right, so how do they plan to interview somebody who won't leave an embassy in London? That's a great question, and Julian Assange is not the only person that they'd like to interview who is not in the United States. Christopher Steele, the author of the Trump dossier, also resides in the UK. And so it's, it's an issue that the committee has come up against. But then again, committee staff could always travel to the UK to talk to him. That's definitely a possibility, or the senators. And so, uh, you know, there are, there are ways to get around this, but the committee doesn't really have any power to bring him to them. Look, we know Julian Assange wasn't the biggest fan of Hillary Clinton, but what are some of the, you know, conspiracy allegations that uh, the Senate is trying to get him to answer here? Well, so what we know from the intelligence community assessment from 2017 about Russian activities during the election and, re and a recent indictment from Robert Mueller is that the people who hacked the DNC and John Podesta and the DCCC were the Russian military uh, officers, were the Russian intelligence, op it was a Russian intelligence operation. And so the fact that WikiLeaks then received those emails, they're wondering probably whether, you know, the Russian government gave Julian Assange and WikiLeaks these in, this information and whether WikiLeaks and Julian Assange knew that's where it came from. Assange and WikiLeaks have denied that it came from the Russian military or from the Russians at all, but uh, it's, it, it certainly is, it's been alleged that that's where it came from. And so whether that connection is crystal clear is something they're going to want to look at. Uh, is there any sense of whether or not he's actually going to agree to this? Well, according to WikiLeaks, who put out a statement on Twitter, their lawyers are considering the offer. So we shall see. We shall see. All right. Well, here's a tweet from Senator Rand Paul. I was honored to deliver a letter from President Trump to President Vladimir Putin's administration. The letter emphasized the importance of further engagement in various areas, including countering terrorism, enhancing legislative dialogue and resuming cultural exchanges. Emma, why did Rand Paul become a carrier pigeon for the president? You know, that's a great question. Like, do none of these guys realize that email exists? Or you could just, I don't know, text your buddy Vlad? Like, come on. Text your buddy Vlad. <laughs> I'm sorry, but what, but what is the point? But well, what why, the is the, why is there a letter? Why do they need a letter? You're asking a good question here. So, you know, this is more common in, in sort, for sort of ambassadors who are going to a new country. They'll bring something called letters of credence and introduce them to the government that, uh, of that country. Uh, I, I don't think it's that common for this kind of letter to go around. I could be wrong. Um, but it just seems kind of odd, I guess, because we're so used to everything happening, you know, between world leaders by phone um, or other method. Now, this is part of the back and forward between Trump and Putin after their summit, of course. And Trump, just remind us where things left off, because I remember Trump saying, the White House saying that Trump wanted to invite Putin to Washington, but now they're saying that's probably not going to happen anytime soon. What's, do you remember what the latest is with that? What's going on? 
Yeah, so Putin is not going to be coming anytime before the midterm elections, according to the White House. Putin has also invited Trump to Russia to talk again. Um, it's unclear whether that's going to happen. And also, Rand Paul has invited a delegation of Russian lawmakers to Capitol Hill, something that hasn't happened in several years. And so we shall see if that happens as well. Well, thank you, Emma, and I'm going to send you both an SMS, and I'm going to send you a little letter as well, just for old time's sake. Why not? Oh, my God, text me. Okay. <laughs> Thanks, Emma. All right, well, here's a tweet from Paul McLeod. I tried to break down here how the Trump administration may whip weaponize Obamacare, food stamps, and other programs against legal immigrants and use them to reject green card applications. Paul joins us now. Paul, good morning. Hey, good morning. All right, so that sounds scary. How is the Trump administration looking to make this happen? So what they're doing here is really sneaky because they're actually using a law on the books since the 1950s that allows the government to reject permanent residency to people it deems will be a public charge. And what that means is just a burden to society. But it's not defined in the law. So past governments have interpreted it to mean somebody who's not going to have a job and has to be supported by welfare. What the Trump administration is looking to do is reinterpret this very, very broadly to someone who is expected to use essentially any social service. And the way they determine that is if they've used anything in the past. So what that means is if you are a legal immigrant and you've used any number of, of social services that you are entitled to and legally allowed to use, something like a subsidized Obamacare plan or food stamps or, say, your children even taking part in a childhood nutrition program at their school, that would now be grounds for the government to reject you from getting a green card. This is scary stuff, Paul, especially as, as someone here with, without permanent residency. I'm here through a visa as well. and I Yeah, me and you both, man. This affects us. Seriously, it really does. Yeah. Our, our legal status would be caught up in this. Right. So if I, so you named some of the programs there. If, if we had to take something involved with Obamacare or something like that, uh, you mentioned food assistance. Are there any other programs? Uh, there are a bunch, yeah. And yeah, if people want to look at the story, I list a bunch of them. But it's pretty wide-ranging. So as I say, uh, it can be uh, Obamacare health insurance plans, children health insurance programs, uh, food stamps, children's nutrition programs, ed uh, education assistance, housing assistance. And you can kind of see the reason that other governments have not touched this is because as a matter of public policy, you want the people in your country to have access to housing and to education and to health care. And you want children to have nutritious meals in the morning every day when they're going to school. So other governments have stayed away from this. But what the Trump administration is looking at doing is essentially parents would have to choose between these things or not having any long-term stability or in terms of ability to live in this country. And just to be clear, sorry, before Isaac asks his question, legal immigrants, you and I, we're paying taxes here as well, right? So these are programs that we're funding as well. So it's not, this is not a kind of mooching off the system thing necessarily. No, anyway. and the government has said that they've, they've their rationale for uh, defending this policy is that they're saying that <laughs> that immigrants are, yeah, raising the debt and like taxing the system, but these are systems that people pay into. And it's actually been, you can, you can calculate it. And there's a story that BuzzFeed did that immigrants actually pay more into these social services than they take out. Yeah. So again, <laughs> taxpaying members, uh, you guys are my friends. Uh, they're looking into this. Uh, when are they looking to implement it if they do? We're expecting it pretty soon. Well, we're expecting it to be posted publicly pretty soon. This is all going off draft reports that have leaked. Uh, we're expecting the final rule to be, or the draft rule to be posted publicly anytime, probably by the end of August. Then there will be a public comment period of likely a few months, and then it can be enacted. So, I mean, it could be 
maybe as early as by the end of the year or early next year. Just quickly, Paul, we, we know that the Trump administration has been trying to get tough on illegal immigration for a long time. Mm-hmm. Why, why are they going after legal immigration now? Well, it's taken a lot of the attention, the undocumented immigrants, because of things like the child separation at the border, understandably. But in fact, this has been the Trump administration's stated policy since the get-go. I mean, they, they've been very clear about wanting to reduce the rates of legal immigration. Their proposed uh, immigration reform bill would have cut le- legal immigration by about 40%. Now, that didn't go anywhere in Congress. It was dead on arrival there. So they've turned to this instead. Well, thank you, Paul. And uh, we trust you to stay on top of this story as it develops. Thanks very much. I will be. Cheers. Up next, my interview with the stars of Spike Lee's new film, Black Klansman, John David Washington and Laura Harrier. Stay tuned, it's gonna be great. I'm looking, I'm gonna see that this week. It's great. I'm gonna see that. Welcome back. I am here with Laura Harrier and John David Washington, stars of the upcoming Spike Lee movie, or should I say new new Spike Lee movie. It's out now, Black Klansman. Guys, welcome to AM to DM. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Now, this is a period film. It's set in the 70s, but I've seen it with the at the premiere. I was there, and I've got to say, I've never seen a period film feel so of the moment, right? So resonant. Why, why, Why do you think it's resonating so much? Well, I mean, yes, it, it is a period piece, but the subject matter, you know, and, and, yeah. and sort of the words that, uh, you know, are used, you know, the hateful words that are used then are still used today. Mm-hmm. You know, there's sort of a language of it. I think that was Ron's way in, is uh, using these words, and, uh, and, and, and it's still prevalent today. It's a story, obviously, of uh, a black cop who goes undercover the uh, first. to infiltrate first black the K- KKK, right? right. Using mm-hmm. his white colleague uh, and is able to uh, expose uh, these people for who they really are. Um, I wonder, though, there's a lot of the, in the film, as we were saying, that feels particularly, you know, it's uh, alluding to current political events without ever actually saying them for most of the film. Mm-hmm. Do you think this film could have been made today or at least made in the same way if Trump hadn't been elected president? I don't think it would have had the same sort of important, not importance, but but weight to it. Mm-hmm. If um, you know, we're definitely speaking on um, issues about the Trump presidency mm-hmm. in not so veiled terms. Um, so you know, this is a true story, and it did really happen. So of course, it would have been a good movie, absolutely, n- regardless. But um, I think it's so much more important because you know we kind of speak out against this current administration mm-hmm. threat. Now, your characters. Um have a lot of uh, debate between the two of them about the concept of institutions and whether or not you can fix an institution from within Mm -hmm. or whether or not you have to kind of break it down from the outside. I'm wondering where personally, in the time that we're in today, where do you guys fall in that debate? Well, honestly, um, I was so proud to take on this role because before the research, before I knew about it, I didn't know much about African-Americans or people of color that were protecting and serving and what they have to go through. And so in my research and on my findings and uh, spending time with a lot of police officers and Ron specifically, mm-hmm. um, I found that, uh, you know, you can change things from the inside. They're just as passionate as us on the outside, the people they're protecting of, of equality and, mm-hmm. and these sort of issues that are coming up today. And that uh, the, you know, I think Ron is is a true hero for protecting and serving his community, doing it the right way. Mm-hmm. So uh, I feel like, from his perspective, he felt like he was woke, if you will. He, yeah. he was aware and doing it, you know, through the eyes of the law. 
What about you, Laura? You, in your, your character in the film, she seems to be quite a kind of burn it all down and start yeah. again. Is that, is, that, is that what you approach to as well? I tend to veer towards the side of burning everything down, I think. But I do, I mean, I have so much respect for, for Ron and, you know, for the, the officers who serve in the right way mm -hmm. and, um, you know, have respect for the communities and don't commit, um, you know, police brutality and stuff. But um, I do think that, you know, we have to kind of, in a way, dismantle these these institutions that um, are oppressing people. Mm -hmm. So um, I, th I see both sides to it, and I yeah, think so that you know it's um, yeah. that I think both sides are really important to to, mm -hmm. to create change and to start revolution. We mentioned uh, the president and the fact that some of his slogans, at least, are alluded to throughout the film. Um, and then, of course, it's no secret that the film ends with footage uh, from Charlottesville, and the president makes an appearance there. I'm wondering where you two were when Charlottesville happened, and and what you made of Spike's decision to to end the film in that way well I, I was I was here and um, you know I, I thought when I when I went watching this I, I was thinking uh, well we've lost total control and maybe I thought that the whole time but I remember verbalizing it yeah. like I was, it was very I was audible about it you yeah. know and uh, we've lost total control we, we've gone mad and I guess we yeah. already have and um, I was unaware I didn't know he was gonna add it to the film really till uh, till we saw yeah, it. till we saw yeah. it really yeah. the premiere yeah, yeah we didn't know it was gonna end like right, that at right. all that was not in the script no it wasn't uh, and so what did you think when you're sitting there watching and then all of a sudden it's I mean, 2017 at the end of your 70s film? Just, yeah, yeah it's, it's so emotional. Yeah. And, you know, we've all seen this footage, but like on our phones and, mm -hmm. and you know, in, in places where we can look away and kind of not be forced right. to, to watch like the yeah. horror that you're seeing in front of you. And when you see it on the big screen yeah. and you can't look away and you realize, you know, these atrocities that were committed and that mm -hmm. this woman was murdered, mm -hmm. um, it's it's difficult to watch, but I think it's, you know, kind of the only way that he could have ended the movie. I think it's, it's yeah, I was going to say, especially where it's placed in the film. Yeah. You know, we go, you go through this ride and you see the, uh, you know, I don't want to give away stuff, but uh, you think it's going to end here or they, they've tied up a plot here mm -hmm. and then bam, they hit you and with then, the truth of reality. Yeah. Like, we're still living this, ladies and gentlemen. You know, this is a ongoing issue. So, I think that's what Spike does so well, though. Right, yeah. He's really, you know, kind of hitting yeah. with the reality of everything. It was yeah. really, a, in the audience, a huge tonal shift, wasn't it? Yeah. Watching yeah. everyone finish the film and this sort of, a, you know, sense of accomplishment. And then that huge, there was a, you could have heard a pin drop right. at that theater. Yeah. It was full last night and you could have heard the pin That's drop. It's important, too, though. It ties the generations together. Absolutely. Like, yeah. you know, even how the movie starts with the, yeah. the famous footage there to, to that. Mm -hmm. I, I just feel like that this is a generational problem. It's an issue. Again, I keep talking about the language of hate. You know, and you see its consistency and how organized it is. You know, and I think this film highlight, highlights that in a bit, in a major way, through the uh, the footage at the end and in the beginning, obviously mm -hmm. the plot and the story. Now, Laura, your character has—you uh, do have a scene where uh, he asks you, um, "Can't you ever just let this go for a second? Do you have to always be on?" Mm -hmm. um, and you, you you sort of say, "Well, no. This is something I can't let go of my identity politics." And I'm wondering. Um, as I said, in where we are today, is it something you relate to? You feeling like this is always, uh, we always have to be politically on, or are you able to step back and kind of switch off for a while? Um, I think it's important to always be aware of what's mm -hmm. happening and always, you know, recognize um, the current climate that we're in yeah. and also see that, you know, we are in kind of this era of, um, you know, oppression in a lot of ways but I do think it's also important to, to take time for yourself and to you know take take a step back and reflect and make sure you're taking care of yourself yeah. and you know because all of this stuff is really overwhelming and that can get really um, you know psychologically intense so I think while we need to be fighting and be active um, we also you know need to protect ourselves mm. at the same time what does self-care look like for you guys then 
self-care. Yeah, in terms of stepping back and being able to look after yourself. Some good old garbage reality television. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Like yeah. Chinese food. Long yeah, yeah. Long yeah. Long yeah. Long yeah. 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 Let's, yeah. Let's swim or something. Yeah. yeah. yeah that's right? care. You know, yeah. with salt water. I would agree. Yeah. A beach helps. Yeah. Beach. Yeah. Beaches yeah. always. I mean, you travel beaches. a lot. So, you know. Yeah. Traveling, kind of. Yeah. You know. But also just like. Being at home and sleeping in and Absolutely. getting a second for like one day postmates is self care. Let's, go. Yeah, Let's do sure. that. That's yeah. great. Uh, I want to go to this tweet from Melissa Kimball. Uh, this is amazing. Shout out to this father son promo moment. Denzel Washington uh, in yes. the Equalizer yes. Two and John David Washington in the Spike Lee directed Jordan Peele produced Black Klansman. Uh, I have to ask: Is your mom rooting for one of these films over the other? Uh, that's a good question. <laughs> no, I don't think so. No, she's a very proud mom and, and wife. And uh, it's very exciting. That, is, that was a trip seeing that, though. I've, right. I've seen a couple of those now, and uh, it's pretty cool. Now, you've talked a, a, a bit about how you, you had a love for acting at an early age, mm -hmm. and you wanted to step away from it to try to forge your own path. And uh, I'm wondering, what brought you back? Did you, is it just that you stopped caring about being compared to your dad? Well, what was happening in my professional pursuit uh, in the NFL was mm -hmm. uh, the, the success I had came with a tagline, mm -hmm. which was Denzel's son. You know, I was running for all these yards and setting records. It wasn't me that was doing it. Apparently, it was Denzel's son that was doing it. So when I realized when I got over that sort of fear or, or anxiety of trying to make my own name, I was doing it. And I can't control what people think or say about my performance. Yeah. So uh, due to an injury and some series of events that happened that led me to acting uh, professionally, I had that going in knowing that, well, I might as well go for it because as successful as I was in that career and that on the field, it's always going to follow me and people are going to say and believe what they want. And that's okay. Yeah. You know, as long as I'm true to myself and true to the craft it's, and uh, all the stuff I learned in football, I apply to uh, acting now. Well, uh, I say uh, we're very glad that you chose acting because you're both <laughs> incredible too. in this film. Uh, it's as they're early film roles for both of you, and I'm wondering to go big with Spike Lee to be in that iconic Spike Lee shot. What are you going to take away from this for the rest of your careers? What what? How do you you know? continue acting knowing it's that you've hard. already done Spike Lee. Right. What, what comes yeah. next? Well, it, it was, for me, personally, it was a master class. You know, yeah. I learned the, I, it's like I learned uh, the ways of the Jedi, you know what I mean? Jedi <laughs> Force, you know what I mean? Seriously, I mean, it, it was every day on set, the man that he is, like, what he's accomplished, like, he doesn't have to make films anymore if he doesn't want to, and he had this just youthful exuberance about, mm -hmm. you know, telling the story, and he, he's a big proponent of process, and he didn't want to skip any steps. You know, a lot of times sets is hurry up and wait, you know, but there was a certain pace to it and it seemed like everybody wanted to be there the environment was so familiar and and, and family-like so um, that's what I took away from it that there's multiple ways of telling the truth you know you don't have to just do it one one way and I, I really appreciate that and as an actor as a performer the trust he had for us um, I'm taking that away with me uh, in every other set I go to now what about you Laura um what 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 about Spike Lee? How do you uh, you know what did you draw away from him in terms of was it just I acting mean, skills or was there kind well, of well like like JD was saying you know his enthusiasm on yeah. set is so mm -hmm. infectious like he has so much energy I yeah, don't know how he, he does. does it it's yeah. crazy yeah. and he's running around and you know making everyone dance right. we had so many dance parties right. on set too which That's was good. so fun yeah. um, but you know I think you when you see someone who believes so much in what they're doing and mm. and in the story that we were telling and the importance of it um, yeah that's infectious. 
backpacks just for the whole set. So I would just, you know, love to carry that with me the rest of my career of like that passion of what we're doing. Amen. Yeah. Well, this will we definitely will. Yeah. Amen. Well, I mean, this is gonna be a high point. I have to say because it's an incredible film. Congratulations to the both of you, and I hope everyone goes see Black Klansman. Thanks, John David, and thank you, Laura. Stay tuned. More AMTDM up next. Thank you. has borne witness to one of the great conflicts of our time, the Straw Wars. <laughs> BuzzFeed News decided to tackle all sides of this ever-growing debate and published, Hand Over Your Straws, You Giant Babies, Straw Politics is Dividing the Nation, I Propose a Third Way, and finally, You'll Take My Straw from My Cold, Dead Hands. Well, joining me now is the author of that last story, Adam Jane, Adam, thank you so much for joining me to talk about this very divisive issue. Thanks for having me, Stephanie. So, obviously I'm a journalist. I can't reveal any of my own feelings about the straw debate, but I'm gonna play devil's advocate. Why do you hate sea turtles? Oh, I, I, don't, <laughs> I don't hate sea turtles. I saw the picture. I felt a lot of empathy for that turtle. You could really almost feel it in your nose when you saw that turtle. Um, but I just don't think we should be basing policy on empathy for a single turtle any more than we should be basing policy on any other emotion. Um, That's true. And one of your big problems with the push to ban straws is the statistic that we've been seeing everywhere on Twitter, on Facebook, that Americans use 500 million straws a day. What is problematic about that number? Okay, so several things. Uh, it's We've basically reduced this number down to 150 to 175. That number kind of came from a rough estimate that a child came up with and he got a, didn't, people didn't really want to push back on it. And a lot of people will still say, well, isn't 150 million straws still quite a lot of straws? To which I would say, well, if there really were 500 million straws that were being used and we got it down to 150 million, we'd say, oh, we've reduced it by 65%. That's wonderful. Um, but now all of a sudden people are saying, oh, well, it's still too many. We should still get rid of them. So I say, well, what's the goal? Where are we going with this? Um, and we, we got from 500 million to 150. Maybe that's, maybe that's enough. Yeah, I think that's really interesting that you pointed out, which is something that a few BuzzFeed News reporters, actually our BuzzFeed newsletter today by Kenan Topolis is about this topic, that the $500 million thing, which has gone, not, sorry, 500 million straws thing that went viral was actually made up by a nine-year-old child, that which is right. a little weird. I mean, no matter how you feel about the issue that everyone's been citing that statistic. So you're concerned with the like, straw ban being a gateway ban for other harder plastics. Why do you think that is a bad thing? Uh, I think it's a bad thing for, because um, if, if we want to be banning plastics, I think we should be talking about what we really want to be, be banning. Um, there's probably things that might be less intrusive that won't be affecting people every single day of their lives. I mean, people are going to be, people are, are going to be aware of this ban. So people that want to ban the straws should remember that people are going to notice this. This is going to be in people's faces. So if people are saying that, well, really, it's not that big of a deal about straws, but it's a good way to start good behaviors, um, and we're going to get to bigger things later, let's just get to the bigger thing. And let's all understand that, you know, let, let's be careful about running some type of uh, nudge, behavioral economic psychology experiment on, on cities at a time when the real goal isn't banning the straw, but it's really banning some other thing that you have your eyes on. 
So even if the statistics are a little bit wrong, isn't banning single-use plastic a good thing or why not? Um, it may be a good thing, but I feel like I feel like when people ask that question or frame things that way, it sounds a little Machiavellian to me, which is ironic because people are saying that, oh, Trump is a fascist dictator and um, we have to be careful. And then suddenly they, say, they turn to a Machiavellian, ends justify the means. Does it really matter if we make up fake statistics? Does it really matter if the straws are really only hurting one turtle or two turtles or really not that much of the plastic? Isn't it good to ban them anyway? And I feel like Let's just have an honest conversation with each other. Some sides want to, you know, some sides want to ban plastic straws. Another side wants to legalize plastic guns. So I think it's very, we should be very, very careful with how the sides yield power to get their way. So the, the, the kind of upshot of my piece, and I think all the pieces, because I did read the other two pieces, I thought Alice's piece was very, very good. It may have persuaded me to, honestly persuaded me to use fewer straws. And I think that's the way we want to accomplish this goal um, because there will be a time when the people who want to ban straws are not in power and something else will get banned or something else will get legalized and I don't think that's the way that we want to go. Well, Adam, thank you so much for joining me. Your piece is up on BuzzFeed News right now as well as all of the other pieces and I hope no one ever takes a straw out of your hand. They've been warned. <laughs> up next, we're talking about the changes to the Oscars. Don't go away. Welcome back. Well, the Academy tweeted, change is coming to the Oscars. Here's what you need to know. A new award category, cutting time to a three-hour telecast, and an earlier air date. Joining me now to discuss all of these changes is Alison Wilmore, BuzzFeed News critic and culture writer, and Adam B. Very, BuzzFeed News senior film reporter. Welcome, both of you. Thank you for joining us. Hello. Uh, Adam, I Adam, good. I want to start with you. Can you talk me through what were some of the initial criticisms that uh, have prompted the Academy to make these changes? It really is all about uh, ratings and relevance. Uh, this year's Oscars uh, in Mar at uh, the beginning of March uh, had a viewership of 26.6 million people, uh, which was a 19% drop from the year before. That's a huge, that's, that's ratings sort of dropping off of a cliff. And so I think there was a perception, whether that's an accurate one or not, that the Oscars were no longer relevant to a large group of people and that they needed to be more exciting, more youth-driven, shorter. And, and now we're here talking about these changes. And Alison, what, who, who is the powers that be here? Who's voting to approve these changes? Well, this is the Academy, right? right. Like the Academy itself, it's made up of all these people in the industry and actors, uh, but also they're certainly getting pressure from ABC, mm -hmm. uh, who Which airs they the air Oscars, the Oscars. Right. So they obviously have a great deal of interest in making as many people watch them as possible. Uh, they reportedly leaned on the Academy a bit to be like, right. something has to happen. And the Academy, of course, itself is like, they want people to watch the Oscars too. Right. Okay. So Adam, when news of this dropped yesterday, how, what was the response from most people? Negative, I would say. <laughs> Mostly negative. Um, I think uh, the biggest concern was the new category for most best popular film, most popular film. The, uh, the, in the announcement, they were uh, pretty frustratingly vague about the qualifications. Wasn't clear if it was going to be driven on box office 
on how many theaters it's exhibited in. Uh, and also just people got the feeling that this is just like some sort of consolation prize for doing really well and not really going to affect the overall picture of what constitutes the best pictures of the year. Well, I want to talk about that because we got a tweet here from Mark Harris. It truly is something that in the year Black Panther, a movie made uh, just about entirely by and with black people, grosses $700 million, the Academy's reaction is, we need something uh, to invent something separate but equal. Jesus. Allison, uh, yeah. is, this is a legitimate concern, right? That these kind of films that could potentially make their way into the best picture film category are going to be sort of shunted to this other category? Right. I mean, it's hard not to see this choice as in some ways kind of uh, being about Black Panther and this maybe fear that Black Panther was not going to get a mm -hmm. Best Picture nomination, which frankly, I kind of thought it I think it is going to get right. a Best Picture nomination. But now we have all these questions to be like, what is the difference between being nominated for Best Picture versus right. Best Popular Film? Right. I mean, it seems like a lesser prize in yeah. some ways, you know, to be like, one is for quality and one is for quality and popularity. Is Adam, are these going to turn into token trophies? Uh, that's the fear, I think, from a lot of people that I've talked to and have been weighing in on Twitter. The Academy's uh, been really working hard to try to bring in more popular films over the last 10 years or so. In 2009, they expanded the Best Picture category from five films to 10. And then a couple years later, they changed it to be sort of sliding scale from anywhere between five and 10. But the whole idea there was to try to get more popular movies into the best picture category. And to a certain extent that has been somewhat successful, but it also means that a lot of much smaller films also got into the best picture category as well. Um, and they also created this uh, category called best animated feature film, which was a way to honor the, the great animated movies that have been coming out uh, really since kind of the launch of Pixar in 1995. Um, but you know, that also has meant that most of the great animated movies that are completely best picture worthy aren't nominated for best picture. Movies mm -hmm. like uh, Inside Out and uh, Wall-E didn't make it into best, the best picture category. So uh, that is a sort of a good example of what might happen here where a movie like Dunkirk last year, which was a huge hit, or Get Out, which was a huge hit last year, both got best picture nominations this year, that might have, they, you know, the Academy voters might have been like, oh, we'll just give it, those were just popular movies. We'll just put it in the right. popular category, even though they were also really great films in their own right. Yeah. Well, speaking of uh, Pixar and Disney, uh, AM to DM's own Kayla Hawkins tweeted this conspiracy theory. ABC <laughs> broadcast the Oscars, as Allison said, and Disney makes nine out of 10 of the highest groping films per year and is also in the process of buying a studio that won three Best Picture Oscars in four years. So, you know, Allison, uh, you were mentioning the idea that uh, Disney's, Disney owns ABC. They're obsessed with the ratings for the show. Sure. Do you think they're also obsessed with trying to get more Oscars? Is that what this is about? Well, I mean, we have no idea. We cannot know what right. like goes on behind boardroom doors. But like, I do think that you can't, you know, uh, discount the fact that this is obviously to the advantage of Disney in a certain way. Like Disney puts out some many huge mm. properties. Yeah. 
that are definitely blockbusters. Yeah. And many of them have not been traditionally in the race for things like Best Picture. So you're going to see a lot more Disney, uh, you know, umbrella titles yeah. up there for consideration with this new category. Well, thank you, Allison, and thank you, Adam. The three of us are huge Oscars nerds, so I love <laughs> geeking out with you guys. Uh, Twitter, we want to hear from you. What do you think of these changes, and do they have any impact on whether or not you're actually tuning into the awards this year? Let us know using the hashtag Oscars are cancelled. No, AM to DM. Up next, Isaac and I are responding to your tweets. Stay tuned. Thank you. Thank you so much. I love it. Welcome back. I'm loath to ask this, but okay. like, listen, Katie Natopoulos, like Steph was saying, wrote about it in the BuzzFeed newsletter. Yeah. We had a segment on the show. David, where do you stand on the straw debate? Uh, I, I think I, honestly, I'm neutral, but I feel mm. like what's most impressive me is how quickly this has become like a huge national conversation point, right? Right? Like if the climate change people can do what the straw people did, <laughs> like we're gonna fix this earth. Like that's gonna be quick. Yeah, it's gonna be very quick because it is incredible. Like that, that is where my thought goes to. Like, yeah. Who is the PR, who are the PR people behind this? It's crazy and how, do we how get, quickly it took off. Right? It really is. Anyway, this is at us. We're going to read some <laughs> of your tweets. We asked for your best guess on what uh, Amorosa's tapes might say. And Blazium FMA says, nothing. I think there's probably just a bunch of nonsensical mumbling or him thinking out loud, but nothing damning. Perhaps something in the form of some sexual harassment or some name calling. Okay, that's not nothing anymore. Uh, <laughs> it got there. It got there. Well, the president has been caught on tape before saying yeah. some gross things, so who knows? Yeah, and I saw a lot of people saying that on the timeline too while we were talking about it. They were kind of like, listen, this is a president who has been caught saying crazy, crazy shit and it never seems to stick. So what will it really matter what's on these tapes? And I think that was to uh, Blasian's point. Uh, Kirsten Baptiste, you dragged me. Thanks so much. I can imagine how many conversations Isaac has saying, no, look, hear me out on this, okay? And listen, Kirsten, I'm just here to say that my paranoia is correct. It's turning out that all these people are taping each other all the time. Mm -hmm. I always try to speak as if I'm being listened to. And probably now that I say it out loud, that's from being raised Catholic. Uh, but, I, you know, I get really nervous about this kind of stuff. And now it's turning out to be true. Well, you're, Did you just you're, make a crazy motion? No, no, no. Look, let's drag Isaac one more time with a tweet from a queer mermaid. I always forget that Isaac is a heterosexual until he says something like, I haven't listened to the new Robin. Oh. Very true. <laughs> We're gonna do that when we get off the air. I'm going to fix it. All right, we are going to listen to it. I will say this though, that's not a drag. That's just a compliment. That's oh. how I feel on that one. But listen, thank you so much to our guests, Laura Harrier and John David Washington. I'm so excited to watch that movie this weekend. Mary Ann Georgentopoulos, Max Tani, Patrice Peck, Marshala Perkins, Emma Luke, Paul McLeod, Stephanie McNeil, Adam Jane, Allison Wilmore, and Adam B. Berry. We have a lot of guests today. And thank you so much to David Mack for co-hosting with me today. We'll be back here tomorrow, 10 a.m. Mac, Mac Attack is going to continue. We're here. We're, we're here. here. We're here at Queer. Well, some of us. I'm going to listen to Robin. Let's do it. <laughs> All right. We're going to play the new Robin song <laughs> right now. All right.